This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Dr. Jennifer Ashton. I'm a mother, a friend, and a physician. I report on health and medicine for ABC News, but I'm here to talk about something very personal. My husband of 22 years and the father of our two teenage children died by suicide. I, like so many of you, have been on a journey that includes guilt, anger, and hopelessness. A journey to find courage, comfort, and community. This is for anyone suffering after unthinkable loss. This is life after suicide. My guest today is Melissa Rivers. She's an actress and TV host who lost her TV producer father, Edgar Rosenberg, to suicide when she was in college, and her mother, Joan Rivers, who died unexpectedly during a routine medical procedure. We sat down in her Malibu home to discuss stigma, anger, of course, laughter, and healing after sudden loss. First of all, Melissa, thank you for having me over to your beautiful home. And you and I really bonded, unfortunately, over the crappy club that we're both members of. Yeah, it's it's a club that nobody wants to be in. Right. Which kind of like also, which I'm into, like the divorced club. Nobody really wants to be in that either. But hi, here, let's go have a a cocktail. Correct. (laughs) Right. The club you never wanted to be a member of. That's right. Welcome. Yeah. (laughs) Here's your card. Here's your membership number. And sadly... Um, the membership is growing. Um, you were really so kind and generous in speaking to me for my book. Um, and you were so helpful to me because you really shared your experiences when you lost your dad to suicide to kind of give me a little bit of a crystal ball or possible crystal ball as to what my own kids will be facing. Cause you were the same age that they were right. when you lost your dad. Mm-hmm. So... Can you take me back, if you can, because I know it's so painful and it's been a while. 87. Right. We had a very long driveway, and I came up the driveway, and I noticed that our security was still there. And usually they were just there at night. And I walked into the side door. And it's so funny because I remember it like yesterday, and we had this long hallway with the office off to one side and the living room, and then we had a beautiful library down there. And Gavin was in the library on the phone and waved to me. And then he told me. And you were 18? I had just turned 17 or 18. I think I, was, I think I was just 18. And you were a freshman at Penn? I was a sophomore at Penn. You were a sophomore in college. And what was your, do you remember what your first reaction was? <sighs> God, it's been so long. It's like my first, it's, it's one of those things that's so, Death in general is very hard to get your mind around. And suicide and, and all, is even harder, I think, to get your mind around because it, it doesn't make sense. It's not natural. Right. So I just was numb. 
I had to tell my mother. When your dad died by suicide, did you know anyone else who... I remember my parents had a couple friends that had, had passed. Um, that was also such a time with that coincided, and I, I didn't sort of realize that till right now, actually, that coincided with also the AIDS epidemic and all of that. So we, we, you had, especially in the entertainment industry, you had a lot of gay men choosing suicide rather than going through the end stages of of of, of, of AIDS and HIV-related diseases. Um, so I kind of have a vague memory. I remember a very good friend of my mom's killed himself, too, actually, and my parents, and that was why. But I only have, and I just thought of that just now, I only have very sort of tangential memories about that. I, that so, the beginning of the summer that my dad ended up killing himself, um, a friend of mine from high school had killed herself at college. Wow. And my dad had said to me, Never forget, it's a permanent answer to a temporary problem. And that was three months before he did. Wow. A little betrayal. So you felt anger. Oof. You told me. Suicide's very, people don't realize how much anger there is. What were you angry about? Everything. Everything. I mean, you know that. You're angry. I was angry at my mom. I was angry at my dad. I was angry at the UPS guy. I was angry at the person in traffic. I was, I used to feel like I used to call it like this free floating sort of anger and God help whoever it landed on that day. But I was really mad at my mom, really mad. And we've spoken very openly about that. And, you know, let's talk about your mom for a second because I admired her so much. And I shared with you when we first spoke on the phone how way before suicide hit my family, I always thought about what your mom and you have had to live with. Because when your dad died by suicide, as you said, that was an era where... It It was taboo. You didn't talk about it. It was, you know, you might as well have had the big S on your chest. And how did... You said you were angry at your mom, but you... Your relationship with your mother is so famous. Right. So famous. Yeah. How did you, just give me the arc of that anger and how it affected your relationship and how you came out on the other side. Um, And I don't know if you went through this with your kids. There's a lot of anger and a lot of blame. And I don't know, do do people know that you were two weeks divorced? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I think, and again, I don't know. With your, like, you were recently divorced. And so maybe somewhere at one point your kids even thought to you, like, how could you did this? You're partially to blame for this. Well, you know, it's what's interesting, and there we have so many parallels, right? Again, in this club, yeah. Right? But my children's father killed himself just two weeks after our right. divorce, which was very amicable, and he left three notes. Um, my dad left too. He left a note to each of my children and to me, mm-hmm. and. The only thing that I'll share from my note was that it started with the sentence, first, no one is to blame. And when I read that, I thought, is this a joke? I mean, yeah. I immediately said, this is my fault. Of course. Oh, my God, this is my fault. Um, tr- internet trolls 
blamed me. Uh, a lot of people blamed me. And I always think about that note from Rob and then think, you know, whatever blame is circulating in our universe, it's nothing compared to the dialogue that we have with ourselves, mm-hmm. right? I mean, is that what you went through to oh, some Oh, absolutely. Extent? I mean, I, you know, my parents had been in a terrible state in their marriage the Fox show had gone away. There was lots of blame to go around. The media went after my dad. He took the blame. He took the brunt of it because that was what he did. Um, they had sort of separated, but not really. Like, my dad went away on business for, like, 10 days or a week um, to Philadelphia. And so in my mind, it was at some point her fault. It was everybody's fault. It was the network's fault. It was specific people at the network's fault. And um, it, it's so funny because like I blamed Barry Diller. I blamed my mom. I blamed, and eventually, obviously, I got past all that. Like someone said to me, oh, Barry still thinks you blame him. I'm like, oh my God, I stopped blaming him 25 years ago. After how much therapy? (laughs) When you're a teenager and I was the only child and the last conversation I had with my dad was, I'll be home tomorrow. And then to have to end up being the one telling my mom, God damn, I was angry. It's you're angry, as you know, and your kids know, like nothing else you've ever experienced. And the joke is what I didn't know was one of the reasons my mom felt so betrayed was you know, every couple has their fights and their makeups and there's certain things you do when the ice is thawing. And I guess my parents were on the phone and arguing and then they, my mom said, oh, and by the way, the new painting came, some piece of art they had bought. And my dad was like, oh. And she's like, you know, I think it should go here. You were right, we need to put it there. I'm having the, the hangar come whenever it was next week. And he was like, oh, okay. And then they went right back to fighting. So my mom's mind, the thaw had started. That was their sort of... They broke the ice. Yeah. Over nonsense. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I look back and I think, oh my God, what the betrayal she must have felt. So when when did the anger that you had towards your mom start to go away? It was almost a year. It was, it was... I was very, very angry, and, um, you know, I, I feel like I'm telling you what you already know, which is one of the things with suicide is the first thing you do is deify the person who killed themselves immediately. There was, they were perfect, like, how could this happen? Didn't, you know, all the crazy questions, and then you have to find someone to blame. And then at one point, you, the anger sets in, and it becomes very much, how could you do this to me? And then, which I always warn people about, you can't get trapped in what I call the if only and the what ifs, because those will eat you alive. If only I had done this, what if? You know, my mom had said to me, you know, the night before, she's like, call your dad. I'm like, I talked to him earlier. She's like, oh, just call him and say goodnight. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm a teenager. And I looked at the clock and I knew he had an early flight out of Philadelphia and it was like, would have been like past midnight. So I'm like, I'm not going to call. I had to live with that. But I had to figure out through therapy that my phone call would not have stopped him. Right. So 
Then you and your mom had this huge, huge, very public split. But also one of the legendary... Coming back together. Yeah, and one of the closest mother-daughter relationships, you know, that I think was has been in the public eye. Well, that's the thing is, everyone's like, do you, everyone's like, do you still feel her around you? Do you still hear her? I'm like, oh, God, every day. I'm like, please. Right. <laughs> oh, my God, give me a break. Stop yakking at me all the time. Everyone's like, doesn't it make you feel good? I'm like, mm, sometimes. <laughs> right, Half right. the time, I'm like, stop. Right. And I hate because so many of the things she told me in the past as an advice actually turn out to be Right. Um, and that is endlessly annoying, but that's another interview. <laughs> um, that's a separate thing. But when, but over, the, let's say, the last 25 years, what was the arc like with your mom? Did you ever say to her, Mom, I forgive you. I'm not angry at you for Dad's death anymore? I think we talked about it in the sense of we both learned so much about suicide. I don't think I ever said those words, like, formally. I, formally. Um, did you ever talk to your mom about how she had processed it over the 25 or so years well, since your dad's death? Not really. And I know that sounds very strange. No. Um, what I found fascinating, and I know my mother would deny this, but that would be also very my mother. Um, she never got past it. She never let go of the anger. And um, she used to tell people, that she was, she stayed so angry because of how could he have done this to me, meaning mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And I don't agree with that because my life had moved on and was good. And she was still, she always said, I'm still so angry because of what he did to Melissa, what he did to Melissa. And I always said, it's fascinating. She's the one that never let go. Mm. She never truly let go. But that's what I'm saying. What's so interesting is, well, and that's why, because of my big joke, and it was the forward, or not the forward, it was the dedication in my last book was to my mother, who I will, you know, who I miss every day, and to my father, who no longer is resting in peace. Right. Which is, I mean, uh, my first thought right. was, oh, dear God, that poor man. Right. <laughs> that right. poor man has had that's all these right. years of peace, and she's coming up that's there right. pissed. <laughs> um, but, you know, for someone who was so open about it, I just always found that fascinating that in her in her soul, she never got past the anger on a lot of levels. I was much more evolved evolved about it. You mentioned something that's really, it's the point of the book um, that you really honored me by participating in, which is how you take the worst tragedy possible and find a way not to make, have it make you angry have it not make you bitter, um, and live in a way that honors that person's spirit and memory. How did you do it? It's, that's a daily conundrum. Um, the anger, you have to just let go. You just, at one point, you know, I got to a point where I said, you know what, and this is what worked for me. I respected my father in life. I have no choice but to respect how he chose to die, I don't have to agree with it. I don't have to like it. But that doesn't diminish how much I loved him. And that, it took me a long time to get that. It took actually a friend of mine in college saying to me, you know it's okay to be angry. 
And you were like, no kidding. Yeah, but also because <laughs> you, know, you right. deify the person. Right. Right. They've de- suddenly this person, no matter who they never did anything wrong, they never upset you. Like you, and and so many people who survive the loss of uh, of a loved one by suicide go to that. Right. You right. know that's that happens. Again, because the time was so different, and your mother's personality was what it was. Do you have any insights into how she processed your dad's suicide? Or was it kind of like piecemeal put together? Because, you know, being who she was in aggregate, she probably didn't sit down with you and say, well, Melissa, Mm -hmm. I had a major realization in therapy Mm -hmm. today. And Mm -hmm. so how were you, if you had to say, I bet she felt this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, no, she never sat down and went like, well, today I feel, I think only time gave me a perspective on what she went through. And I think this will help help him with your kids. I could not get around my head. Like, why would she want to sell the house, the childhood home? Why would she want to move out of California? Why is she taking that away from me? Why is she doing all this? And in hindsight, I realized she couldn't be there. Right. It was too painful. And she literally, in hindsight, was she ran. Did your dad die at home? No, my dad died in Philadelphia. Which was really fun because I also know how to get a body transported back to places. It's, again, another skill set that I am not happy I have. When people are like, yeah, we're trying to shift the body. I'm like, well. Let me tell you how that's done. Let me explain to you how this is going to work. There's only certain flights. You know, it's just like, oh. Right. You know, like I said, skill sets you don't want. Right. Um, But I understand why she had to run. And at the time, I just took it as a personal affront and not honoring my father and how could you do this and you've forgotten him already and only as an adult did I really start to understand that I mean she tells she told a story that I never really understood until probably about three years later four years later and I really understand it now which was she came home and she literally didn't know where the house keys were she didn't know how to set the alarm because my dad had given her a life where he would be the bad guy and he would take all the crap and all the slings and arrows and all she had to do was write and be funny. And she remembers, I went back to college and then she came home. She couldn't figure out where the, where the house keys were. And then so the next big moment was she was by herself. She'd gone to dinner with friends and it was valet and our, their friend's car pulled up and they said their goodnights and her car hadn't pulled up yet or it was just coming up. And they said, oh, there's your car. And they got in the car and left. You know? Like, you would never think about that. And she's like, those 30 seconds that she was standing at valet by herself, she was done. Do you think she felt embarrassed? I think she felt terribly embarrassed. Terribly angry. Terribly embarrassed. Um, like I said, she never got over the anger. I, I don't think she ever got over the anger. She will tell you she would. And she used to say to people, well, I just still can't believe that he what he put Melissa through and he did that to Melissa and you want to be like, mom, I'm probably better than you are on this one. So take me through, if you can, the milestones in your life and how you experience them without your dad there. So start in chronological order. You graduated from uh, one graduated of the best from, universities yeah, in the country. Penn. How was that without your dad? Sad. Did it detract from the graduation for you? Um, Yeah, 
It did. And my mother and I were still in very a very tenuous place at that point. So it felt very, you know, I felt very abandoned. I think that was one of the big things for me with suicide. I think that's one of the big things that affects my life now very much is the whole weird abandonment thing. And then also with the way I lost my mom. Right. That's not abandonment, but most people do not have two parents that you talk to the night before right. and then don't get up in the morning. So that's right. like I would say, like, everyone's like, planes don't fall out of the sky. I'm like, well, yeah. mine did twice. Yeah. Um, so I think with the graduate is disappointment and abandonment and sadness and then getting married. How was that? Um, it didn't bother me in it bothered me more at other people's weddings than my own. It bothered Explain me that. because other people got to have like the father daughter dance. Everybody got to have those moments with the pretty song and then this and then that. And I knew that was going to be missing at my wedding. And that brought up a tremendous amount of anger. Um, and that's why that's where a lot of the anger with my mom was too. She'd be like, damn it, Edgar, you're supposed to be here for this. You know, it's those, it's those milestones that like, you're supposed to be here for this. Right. Um, obviously when I had my son who I did name after my father, I did name him Edgar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people always say like, you know, these weird things, but they put him in my arms and I swear for a split second, I saw my dad looking back at me. Wow. I swear. I saw, I saw him just for a split second. It's the first time I looked into my son's eyes. I'm like, he's here. You know, and, and everything else that goes along with it. It's, it's, it becomes bittersweet. Mm-hmm. And it's always there. How do you keep your dad with you? How do you keep your dad part of your life? Um, I definitely have my dad's sense of humor, which is very, very dry. You're kidding. Uh, well, my mother, <laughs> he made my mom laugh. He, you know, that's, I told you what, what your mom said when I met her briefly that one time, uh, it was at CBS and she was coming off set. I was going on set and I, she had just taken her mic off and I, um, stopped her. And again, I mean, I'm I'm sure most people knew this, but Mm -hmm. having never met her in person before, I was really struck about how tiny she was. And, um, I said, I, Joan, I just have to tell you, I'm so excited to meet you in person. You are such a legend. And she grabbed my arm and she said, honey, I don't know about a legend, but I'll tell you what I am. I'm a fire hazard because they just lit a birthday cake for me on set. And I'm so old that I almost burned the whole studio down. And I just thought that is vintage Joan Rivers. Yeah. Um, You told me, I think before, what was the last? conversation you had with your dad? Um, We were on the phone. He was in Philadelphia. He was coming home the next day. Um, My parents had started to make up. They'd made a deal that my dad would go into serious therapy because of the depression. Um, And he said, I'll see you tomorrow. And what was the last conversation you had with your mom? The last conversation with my mom was one of the best conversations we ever had, um, strangely enough. And it was not deep. Nice. You know, it was, it was, we had had a, we go to Wyoming every year and we had had a wonderful week in Wyoming. And just one of those weird times, like just everything was right. 
everything went, you have like those moments where like, everything's going right. Mm -hmm. And you're like, you know, being a Jew, I'm like, oh my God, how long this is going right. to last. Oh my God. Oh my God. I can't appreciate it because it's going to be gone. And if I like it too much, I'm going to take it away sooner. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a bit of a mind thing. Um, but we'd had this amazing week and she went, came back here a couple of days before me. And then we had like two days here and then she went back to New York and just everything was good. Like everyone was happy and in a good place. And she had worked that night at uh, where she would work out, stand up at Taylor and watch there and came home and called me. And we started laughing about something. And someone had done something and she called me and she couldn't wait to tell me. And we were laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing. And um, she was, we were talking about like how great the trip was and everything was good. And she's like, you know you don't need to wait around anymore. Like you shouldn't wait around. You know, I think it's time for you to adopt a baby, another child, because you know, Cooper's growing up and you need something that loves you again. Because <laughs> like, he was already turning into a teenager. She's like, right. you know, he loves you more than life. He's like, but you, you need something that like, you know, and still you thought, says I love you. You thought perhaps another dog. Right. Why? <laughs> yeah. No, but she was like, it's time. Cause I always wanted another child. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, that was it. Second night, and that was it. Did she tell you about the procedure the next day? She was just having her throat scoped. Yeah. And it, oh, anything like that made her really nervous, but it didn't make her nervous because of the actual thing. She was always worried about what they would find, and she'd been having sure. constant throat issues. And So did she say, I'm nervous? Oh, did she, she say, but I'll, not I'll call nervous. you right after? It wasn't nervous about the procedure. It was nervous about what they were going to find. Right. And she's just like, I just have a really icky feel. He's like, I just have this awful feeling about tomorrow. Like, I just am really anxious. Like, I have this terrible feeling about it. So when your mom died, mm-hmm. did you recognize a lot of the same emotions coming raging back? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Most people in the world do not have one parent that um, decides to take their own life and commit suicide and then have their second parent killed by negligence. So that was pretty much a one-two punch. And boy, oh boy, that came flying back. And it was weird when the anger would come. Um, The first Thanksgiving, I did it again at my mom's house, just like we always did, because it was already August, whatever it was. And it was our our normal group. And one of our very, and I sat in my mom's seat and Cooper sat in what was usually my seat. And one of our mom, my mom's friends said to me, well, I'm really proud of how well you're doing because we all thought you were going to fall apart. And I wanted to turn around and be like, F you. Really? You never figured out how strong I was all these years? You didn't realize that literally I was my parents' child? You guys had that little faith in me? But on the flip side, on the flip side, weren't you feeling like, this man, oh, by the, I am falling apart. I just lost my mother. Yes. Was it like a double-edged sword almost? It was, it was more of, I felt so insulted by it, yeah. which was so strange. And yet I realized that was just the oh, anger. Yeah. The person really wasn't saying anything bad. And all I could think what threw me right back into, really, that's what you think of me? Right. Oh, I would have thought the same thing. That, that's what you think of me? Right. I got through through my father's suicide, and believe me, 
half the time I drag my mom through it and half the time she dragged me through it. Drag or drug? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're major. such a perfectionist. History major, not English major. History major, not English major. We'll have more with Melissa Rivers in a minute. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Anger is a reaction mm -hmm. to losing someone by suicide, but what about the questions? What about the unknowns? Well, I always feel like there's two sort of categories of questions. There's the why and sort of the why were you so unhappy and how could you have felt this way and why didn't you know you were loved? And I think those are saying you just sort of have to process um, and sort of try and piece together because no one really knows what was in the person's mind when it happened. Um, and those, I think, are normal and healthy and part of the grieving process and part of the eventually accepting and getting to the place, like I said, about how I don't like what my father did, but I respected him in life, so I have no choice to respect him and his whole life, including how he chose to die. I don't have to like it or agree with it, but you accept it. The ones I always feel like people have to be careful are what I call the what-ifs and the if-onlys. Because if you get mired in the what-ifs and if-onlys, you might not get out of them. What if I had called? What if I had done this? If only I had reached out and done that. What if they had gotten a better grade? If only I hadn't been snappy. I mean, and, and I, I fear for people when they get stuck in the what-if and if-onlys. Well, I think that to that point, by definition... The suicidal mind is not a rational mind. Correct. In that moment. So it's when you say your father made a permanent decision on a temporary condition. Or a temporary problem, yeah. Permanent answer to a temporary problem. Is, that, is exactly that, that, that none of us mm -hmm. can ask the why or try to put ourselves in that person's mind because that person's mind, by definition was not rational. Correct. And one of the things that gave me a lot of solace was talking to people who had attempted suicide and survived. And I spoke to a number of them, and, and one of the things they said to me, and actually a very good friend of my parents shared it with me probably three or four days after my father had died, and I didn't know this about them, that when the person very often makes the decision... It's the first time, usually in a very long time, that they feel relief and good. And it doesn't mean they're not sad, but it's a strange piece. And <clears throat> that strange piece, it's like a relief, like, oh, okay, now I'm going to be out of this pain. And that helped me. That helped me that in those final decision-making moments that it was a sense of relief. Mm -hmm. Obviously, despair probably got them there, but it was those last moments of, 
Oh my goodness. I can take a deep breath. Yeah. And that saved me. Mm-hmm. That was very important to me. So since you've been through two tragic deaths of both of your parents, different, mm-hmm. but both equally tragic, mm-hmm. do you do you kind of feel like you could give others advice on how to deal with um, that on my web on my on my website I have two things that I really enjoy, which I hope people enjoy too and hope they go look at it. One is I write a section called Dear Diary, which is where my inner voice gets to run free. Um, I find it amusing. And then (laughs) I do an advice section, which is basically just really bad advice. I think um, in general, I think the only advice that I can give, and it's kind of sad, but I can really only give advice on death and dying. I've done both, mm-hmm. you know. I've had to make the decision to sign the papers to remove life support. I had to wake up and get the call that my father had killed himself, and I had to go tell my mother. It's sad that that's the one place that I feel comfortable giving advice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure that's such a bad thing. It certainly makes you feel useful. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't always speak openly about your dad's suicide. No. I mean, I did in the very beginning with a lot of suicide survivors and a lot of that. But I was so young. And I, my whole world was shattered. And I stopped talking to my mom. And, I, and, the, and we sold our house. And, you know, I was doing the best I could. And it was so hard. And my mom at one point, because my anger, I think, was so overwhelming. To the world and to your mom. To her very much. At one point she looked at me and said, I cannot save you until I save myself. Which in hindsight, I understand. Mm -hmm. As an 18-year-old, you just can't deal with it. I get it. Right. I get it. And it had nothing to do with her not wanting to. It's that my anger was so overwhelming. And it was all her fault. So what made you, you've been very, very much more increasingly vocal about suicide and your experience with it recently. Why do you think that's been? I think more people are listening. I've always talked about it. I've always been an advocate. I've always reached out. I've always spoken about it, probably in more general terms, but I'm now on the board of the... D.D. Hirsch Mental Health Services and very exciting Suicide Prevention Center, which is one of the biggest and and original crisis hotlines ever in the country. Um, And I think I know it's become a topic. You know, it's it's now suddenly. I hate to say it, but that perfect storm with the with the rise in teen suicide and all these and almost the strange glamour glamorization of it through different TV shows and all these high-profile right. suicides, that it's sadly becoming the perfect storm. Right. But I hope the end of the storm, we find a safe port. Right. You also told me when we spoke for my book that you felt so different for so long. And you gave me some incredible advice for my own kids, which just mother to mother, of course, like, I will never forget. Mm -hmm. Um, But, 
How did you deal with that? How did you deal with feeling different when you were in college? Oh, my God. You feel like you have a big, giant stamp on you. Nobody knows what to say. Nobody knows how to address you. Nobody knows what's okay to bring up. Nobody, you feel so alone. And the hardest thing for me was you realize, like, you walk up and people look at you, like, kind of with a little bit of pity. Mm-hmm. The one time in life where you, you pray for being average so that you go through, right. you know, the common experience and everybody has it. And grief with suicide, you're still going through the normal grief. I just always feel like there's a little bit of an asterisk next to it. Mm-hmm. So you It's should, a different grief. It's a different grief. It's, it's, it's got different layers to it. Mm-hmm. But grief is grief is grief. Right. You just have a little asterisk, and there's nothing right. to be ashamed of by having that asterisk. Right. Also, you know, again, and you have to be so careful how you say this, and I'm always getting in trouble for saying this. I always say suicide is not genetic. People used to think it ran in families. Depression runs in families. Depression obviously can lead to suicide. It's not a biological predisposition, right. but it mentally gives you, it is sort of an option. Right. And that, for me, is a huge thing that you have to get across to teens. I am passionate about teen suicide. It's It's terrifying as a parent. It's terrifying as a parent. Terrifying. And when I say teenagers, I mean 25 and under. Right. Because that's the number, that's the group that's growing at an exponential rate. So as a parent... Having, you know, again, lived through this when you were that vulnerable age, Mm -hmm. what kind of things do you do with Cooper, you know, that that are maybe more proactive or maybe primed by your own experience? Well, obviously, I try and make him talk and make him feel loved, you know, and again, it's hard, though, with teenagers, and you went through this, too, is there is the drama of a teenager in the, I I just want to die. And you go, no, you don't. But as a suicide survivor, you still get that little pit in your stomach of, you don't, you're scaring me. Even when they're not scaring you. Did it? um, But but with Cooper, I was like, just so you know, this is not an option. Look me in the eye and tell me, you will never do this. This is not an option at all, ever. Right. For my daughter, she um, was 17 when Rob died, and she told me very soon thereafter that one of her one of her classmates came uh, into the dorm at the end of a day and said, "Oh, I had the worst day ever." And Chloe kind of, you know, thought to herself. Was it the worst day ever, though? Because, you don't have a clue what the worst right, day ever is. Right. Because on my worst day ever, my dad jumped off a bridge. Right. So is this really your worst day ever? And I think that that taught me something, as we know as moms, mm-hmm. our kids teach us. But it does reframe your perspective and context in life, right? I mean, yeah. it puts things into a perspective that is kind of like, don't sweat the small stuff times a million, right? right? But also I think so much of it is we also have to allow ourselves to be human. And I always used to say, never forget you're the star of your own movie. So if you want to have a day where you're like, oh, this is the worst day ever, <laughs> right. it's okay to say that yeah. because you actually know what the worst day ever is. Right. Um, 
But it's interesting what you say about your daughter because, again, that's the anger. And that's that free-floating. I mean, I, it's hard because you can still, I'm sure you can, to summon the rage. Mm-hmm. Um, but you learn how to live with it. And what I've been talking about a lot since I started working with Dee Dee Hirsch and the fact that we just unveiled this huge signage in the front of the building. We're the first ones in California, and we're still trying to find out if we're the first ones in the country, that the outside of our building says Suicide Prevention Center. Wow. And that's huge. Yeah. Um, and I was talking to someone about it, and I go, it's so interesting that something that could have destroyed my life and something that created so much unhappiness and anger has become something now to do something really good that I care about and has become so much of a definition of who I am and that I'm proud that I'm a survivor. And it's interesting how something so born out of rage and violence and violence and anger and horror has become something so important and strangely beautiful in my life. Melissa Rivers was so gracious for allowing me to speak with her for my book and for this show. And I want to thank her for that. I admire how she spoke so openly about the anger she felt after her father's death and how over time she was able to realize that his death wasn't about her at all. This is our first episode of Life After Suicide, and I encourage your feedback. I'm always on Twitter and Instagram, at DRJ Ashton. We have a lot of fascinating guests coming up on future episodes. Next week, we have my 19-year-old daughter, Chloe. It's going to be a very intense discussion about finding purpose in the face of the unimaginable. The first place my mind went was, oh my God, who is going to walk me down the aisle now? The ripple of sudden loss is real, and our goal is to be a resource and inspiration for as many people as possible. So please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and give us a review and rating. I want to thank the team that produces this podcast. Eric Strauss is the managing editor of the ABC News Medical Unit. Anne Reynolds is our senior producer and the brilliant team at ABC Radio that I love working with. Tara Gimbel is the manager of programming, producer Trevor Hastings, manager of digital audio Josh Cohan, and executive producer Andrew Cowell. If you're struggling with thoughts of suicide or worried about a friend or loved one, help is available. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255 or text TALK to 741-741 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org for free, confidential emotional support 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Even if it feels like it, you're not alone. 